Look, if you did miss last week, I did, we spent a good amount of time doing the backstory to Nehemiah to make the book make sense. Kind of need to know what's going on in the historical moment that Nehemiah finds himself. So if you missed that, can I encourage you, jump onto our podcast, our website, onto our YouTube. There's a bunch of different ways you can find the message. Uh, it'd be helpful. Uh, it'd be helpful to do that. But just a very quick version. Last week, we met the man Nehemiah. And Nehemiah lives in the Persian capital in Susa, modern-day Iran. And um, he finds himself over there in the east. And he's somehow managed to find himself in the amazing position of cupbearer to the king, in this position of, of influence and access to the Persian king, who is the most powerful man on the, in the world at that time. Uh, and then uh, he, he'd been, he's one of the exiles. The exile had happened 140 years prior when the Jewish people were sent out of, you know, Jerusalem was leveled. They were sent out from, from Jerusalem and they were carried off to Babylon. Uh, the Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians. The Persians, basically, when they came in, they said, hey, everyone that's been, you know, taken out of your lands by the Babylonians, feel free to go home. We don't need you here anymore. Feel free to go back, trying to get some goodwill with the people that they had conquered. And so he told, uh, Cyrus the Great told the, uh, the Israelites that they could head back to Israel if they wanted to. And so a whole bunch did, a big group goes back, and they begin the rebuilding process of Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's life, is set another 94 years after that moment. So 94 years ago, the Israelites started going home, big group went home to resettle, and Nehemiah finds himself 94 years down the track. He's still over in Persia. Don't know why he hasn't gone home, but he's there. He's, he's the cupbearer to the king. And uh, that's his story. And so when we start the book of Nehemiah and we hear um, what's going on, just keep that in mind. Nehemiah is in Persia. The exiles have already gone back a long time ago, ancient history really, 94 years ago. And so these, this, this is the start of the book of Nehemiah. We covered this last week, but let me just set the context again. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. How's everything back home? How's it going? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now remember this coming to Nehemiah's ears, this isn't technically news. This had happened a long time ago, 140 years ago. The walls were broken, the gates were burned. Uh, but the news really is this. Jerusalem is still in rubble after all of this time. After 94 years of resettlement, the city is still basically unlivable. Nehemiah responds, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So this, this news just hits Nehemiah like a ton of bricks and he's just utterly crushed by this news that his city is still in ruins. And so even though Nehemiah had never, probably never been to Jerusalem, he still feels this deep, deep spiritual connection with the land, and he's broken by this news. And that leads us to his prayer, which is our text today, the prayer of Nehemiah in verse 5. So he goes, he goes into a, the season of mourning and prayer. This is what he says. And I said, 
O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. It's referring to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Remember the word that you you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. That's that's what the exile was, right? They They were unfaithful, so God scattered them like he promised. But... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we come to your word now, a word that I've just read for us, Lord, would you teach us? Would you teach us that we might walk in paths of light and in paths of life? For your glory we pray. Amen. So as Christians, we believe some incredible things, it must be said, just purely objectively. Some incredible things. And I think of all those incredible things that we believe, there is none more incredible than what we as Christians believe about prayer. Here's what we believe about prayer. That we have direct access to God the Father by the atoning work of God the Son by the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Direct access to God. Direct access to God. That's what we believe. We believe that we have the attentive ear of the maker of heaven and earth and that he doesn't just listen to us He wants to respond to us. He wants to answer our prayers. This is what we believe. You know, we we can see Jesus say things like this in Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8. He says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For, here's the promise, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks It will be opened. These are the words of our our Lord. Ask, seek, knock. Why? Because it'll go well for you. If you pray, he wants to answer us. Your father will hear and your father will answer. And so we Christians, guys, we believe that prayer changes ultimate reality. Don't we? Do we? (laughs) 
Do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that prayer changes anything? Take a moment to genuinely ask yourself the question, does my prayer life reveal that I believe prayer actually matters? (laughs) I think that's a hard question to sincerely ask yourself. Do we actually believe, do I actually believe that prayer matters if I look honestly at my life? I'm not so sure. I think there is a big gap between what we think we believe and what we reveal we believe with our lives. I think there's a space there of, I don't even know what to call that, but there's a gap. The reason I suspect there's a gap, the reason that I'm pretty confident there's a gap is because if we, (laughs) I think that our desire to pray and our practice of prayer would be wildly increased if we believed what we said we believed about prayer. I genuinely think that. And to be honest, I, um, I see this in myself. So this is, I'm not like lecturing you. I'm, I, the word has lent on me this week as we've been talking about prayer. And I'm coming underneath that word myself. And I'm finding myself convicted by the question, what does my prayer life actually reveal I believe about prayer? And I need to ask you the same question. What does your prayer life actually reveal you believe about prayer? John Calvin, he wrote a wonderfully succinct line. He said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. John Calvin, if you don't know him, he's one of the most uh, influential theologians in the history of the church back in the 1500s. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. What does faith look like, if nothing else? Prayer. What does our prayerlessness reveal about our faith? Faithlessness. Prayerlessness is faithlessness. We don't just have a prayerlessness problem, we have a faithlessness problem. And that's what prayer is revealing to us. Why? Because prayer is the chief exercise of faith. It is the thing that faith does. It prays. And so... Listen, we need to be reminded of the primacy and the priority and importance of prayer because a prayerless life is a faithless life. We need to hear that. We need to be reminded of this. We need to see that, yes, we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, yes, but you're not saved by a dead faith that has long since drowned itself in the lake of prayerlessness. We need to pray. We need to practice our faith by praying. I want to see myself grow in this. I want to see you grow in this. I want to see our church grow in this. We must grow in our prayer. It's urgent. So today I'm, I'm burdened for us to rediscover the wonders of prayer, the joy of prayer, privilege of prayer. Friends, we have direct access to our God, and he answers us. When I find myself unable to pray because I don't know what to pray, I ask myself the question. I just remind myself of this very thing. I have access to the God of heaven who wants to answer my prayer. What is the biggest thing I can think of to ask him for right now? 
Like if I, <laughs> do you know mean like you daydream about winning the lottery? It's like guys, we have something better than the lottery. Are you serious? With the God of Heaven's ear, you can ask Him. What do we need from Him? What do we need? What is the biggest thing we can ask Him for? And just pray and pray and pray and pray. Uh, Cyril Barber, he wrote a, a book on, on Nehemiah, and he's, he said this. He calls us out directly, I think, when he says this. He says, the self-sufficient do not pray. They talk to themselves. Have you ever prayed like that? It's not praying, is it? Just talking to yourself. The self-sufficient don't pray. They merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. That's a lot of Australians today. No knowledge of their need. They don't pray because why? What do they need? Finally, the self-righteous cannot pray. They have no basis on which to approach God. The self-righteous cannot pray. They have no basis on which to approach God. They're still so full of themselves that they won't, they won't go to their knees. Last week, when we launched this book of Nehemiah, I asked you to join me in a prayer, if you remember. The prayer I asked you to join me in is asking God the question, Lord, what, what are the walls you want us to build? We're not called to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. The walls there are doing fine. What is the wall that God is calling us to build? Lord, what, what are the great works that you're calling us to step into in faith? Lord, what, what is the... How, how do we need to come together as a community and be galvanized as a community in the power of the Holy Spirit to rally and labor together for the kingdom of God in our city? Lord, what is the thing? What are you calling us to? What, how, how are we supposed to read Nehemiah? What are we supposed to apply it to? We are literally one week in, it's our second week, and I think God has already answered that prayer. Hasn't he? It's week two, and I think the Spirit is very clearly revealing something to us. That the very first thing God is calling us to rebuild in my life, personally, in your life, personally, and as a church community, is our prayer. Is, could that not be more obvious? We need to rebuild our prayer lives from scratch. And so let's, I think, admit today we're not where we want to be. We don't want to stay here. We want to go deeper. We want to grow. We want to, we want to become better prayers. The Lord understands that we're weak. The Lord understands our needs. The Lord is not condemning of us, but we, we need to go. We need to keep going. We need to keep pushing. It's what faith does. So let's look to God's words now to guide us. We are going to see from Nehemiah how to pray. For Nehemiah, prayer was absolutely vital. This book is chock is full of prayer. There's 10 prayers in total, I think, that I counted. Uh, and really, his, his first instinct is to pray at all times. And I think that's the first thing we can learn from Nehemiah. His first instinct is always to pray. And hearing of the tragic news... He's not thinking, how can I go fix that? He's thinking, we need the Lord to do a work here. And then action flows out of that. So he's not a man of inaction. He's, he's renowned for his action. But he's a man of prayer first, prayer and fasting. If you pay attention to the dates in the story of Nehemiah, he hears the news in like November, December. He prays until around March, April. So about four months he's in prayer. If you pay attention to the late dates later on in the book, 
Turns out he's building the wall for about 52 days. So he spends more than twice the time in prayer than he does physically building the wall. That's, a, that's amazing. That, that is amazing. So Nehemiah isn't mainly a book about building a wall. It's mainly a book about prayer and calling on God to do a work through us. That is the point of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows prayer is the priority before all else. The Puritan John Bunyan, he said it really well when he said this. He said, you can, uh, you can do more than pray after you've prayed. You can't do more than pray until you've prayed. Does that make sense? You can't do more than pray. You, you can do more than pray, but only after you pray. But you cannot do more than pray until you've actually prayed. Prayer takes us further than we can ever get by ourselves. That's what he's saying. Action must come after. And yet how often, if you just reflect on your own life, how often do we just skip prayer, go straight into the busyness, the, the activity, and we're just thinking, I can solve this. I can do this. I can just get on with this. Nehemiah knows. No, no, we, we need to prioritize prayer first, always. It needs to come first, always. And so Nehemiah's prayer here, it has a, a wonderful... It becomes a wonderful template for us, I think, on how to pray. And it actually, uh, it fits the classic Acts structure. If you've ever heard of, of the Acts structure, let me just uh, lay that out for you. If you want to throw up the next slide there. Um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Very, very, very helpful. If you haven't seen that before, four, four steps in prayer. Adoration, we start with looking upward in awe. Remember who God is. Confession, looking inward, humbly, confessing our sin. Thanksgiving, looking backwards with gratitude at what God has done and what he has promised us. And finally, supplication, looking forward in hope. Supplication is just a fancy word for asking, but that would ruin the acronym. There's already an A. We can't, we can't have two A's in there. We have to have another one. Request, again, actor, no, no good. So we have to go with supplication, the old school word, but it's a great word. Uh, we end up with acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So let's have a little look at Nehemiah's prayer here. We're going to start with the A, adoration. Let's look at what he says. Let's look at the, the character of God that he, 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 he looks to. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Instead of first diving into prayer and asking God of all the things we need, that's sometimes what we think of with prayer, don't we? We think of I need to pray, I need to ask God for stuff. That's four. That's supplication. We have four things to do, three things to do first, right? The first thing we need to do is re remind ourselves, orient ourselves to who we're praying to. Adoration is about acknowledging we're praying to the God of heaven. It's so important we do that. Who is this God we're talking to? Who is this God? Nehemiah tells us he is the Lord God of heaven. So focusing on his, his transcendence. He's over the world, over the universe. He is the great and awesome God, right? Reminding us of his, of his holiness 
again, his transcendence, his bigness, his, his power, his divine qualities. And he says, he's the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The word translated steadfast love here is the Hebrew word hesed, which is a great Hebrew word, hesed. And it, it's, it's almost untranslatable. It's one of those words that has a, bit, a few parts to it. Um, but basically it refers to God's graciousness, his faithfulness, his steadfastness, the fact he will never go back on his word, his trustworthiness, his loyalty. His, it's just that perfect picture of that perfect husband, you know, that, that, div, that divine love and faithfulness. And like Nehemiah, when we pray, we've got to start by acknowledging who our God is. Who is he? He's like this. He's the good and awesome God. He's the great and awesome God. He's the transcendent God. He's the God who loves us. He's the God who is, who is both far up above us, but also came near to us in Christ. He is the faithful God. He's the loving God. He's both good and he is both good and great. What's, what I find really interesting is um, Nehemiah's prayer. It almost fits the same pattern that Jesus teaches us to pray in, in the Lord's Prayer. There's a lot of similarities not exactly, obviously, but there's a lot of similarities in, in how Jesus teaches us to pray and how Nehemiah prays here. And, for example, Jesus, when, when the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, how do we pray? Jesus started with these words. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is saying, before you start asking God for stuff, acknowledge him as your Father. You remember that he's, he's, he's your dad, your heavenly Father. He's in heaven. He's above us. And then we say, hallowed be your name. Lord, you deserve all the glory. All the glory. To you be honor and praise. Jesus likewise taught us to begin with adoration when we pray. The second thing we see here is confession. So once we've acknowledged who God is, once we've, we've positioned ourselves underneath his authority and we've reminded ourselves that he's our father, that he's good. He's not just big, but he's, he's near to us. Once we've acknowledged that, we, we then need to acknowledge who we are before him. Who are we to come to him? Or we're his children. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Notice here, Nehemiah, is, he's, praying, he's praying a prayer of confession about generational sin here. He's praying a prayer of confession for sin that he was not involved in remotely. He wasn't there. He, he wasn't born before the exile. He's, this is 94 years after the exile is finished. And yet Nehemiah acknowledges his part, his ancestors' part in this generational sin. He still knows that he's part of it, and he acknowledges that. My and my father's house have sinned. He knows he's not without sin. He knows that he would have done the same thing if it were him. We, so now he's using that personal pronoun, the first person pronoun. We have acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, your statutes, the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. You know, what we're learning here is that honest 
and sincere confession must be part of our regular prayer life. There are some people out there today, some Christian teachers, who like to teach that confession's done away with. We don't need to kind of keep talking about our sin. God loves us now. We're kind of free from that. Um, No. Do you know what Jesus teaches us to pray again? Forgive us our sin. Forgive us our debts. You know, Jesus teaches us to do this exact same thing as this regular rhythm of prayer. Confession is not something you do before you get baptized. It's a regular rhythm of prayer. That's what Jesus teaches us. This is what Nehemiah is teaching us here as well. And so let me ask you, is confession of sin a regular habit in your prayer life? A regular habit. I love the way that the Puritans used to talk about about this idea. They um, they used this, this idea of, they used to say, keep short tabs with God and men. Keep short tabs with God and men. And what they're saying is, you know, it, it, uh, don't think of forgiveness as like a credit card where you can rack up this infinite debt. And then just like, when, once you're dead, Jesus will pay, cover the bill at the end. He's saying, no, no, don't, don't think of it like that. Bring those debts to God each day. Keep, those ta- keep that credit card bill low with God. Check in every day. Check in with your sin every day. Why? Because if you let it pile up, you'll be hardened to sin. You'll be hardened to God. No, you need to bring your sin to the Lord regularly as a regular rhythm of your faith. So keep a short tab with your father. I think everyone understands this, right? The longer you let that thing rack up, the harder it is to go to him. Until one day, what? Guess what? You don't go to him. Keep that tab short. Friends, his mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. He will pay the tab every time. He really will. So Nehemiah, he, he knew that confession was an essential part of his life. And he knew it. He knew that before he could get to work, before he could go be used by God in this world in the rebuilding of the war, before all of that, he knew that he needed to confess his sin. He knew that he would be no use in the hands of God in this world with his sin unconfessed. Friends, in the same way, we are not building anything until we come to God and let him rebuild us. We are not rebuilding anything in this world until we bring our sin to him. Some of us, we've been treating forgiveness like that credit card. You've been racking up a debt and you've not been taking it to him. It's been a long time since you've actually gone to the Lord in confession. His mercy is in you every morning. His grace is with that end. Today needs to be the day where you go to him in confession and receive fresh grace. Fresh grace. Grace for today. Now the, the Hebrew word here for, the, for confess, used in verse 6, it means to throw something or like to cast something down. It's not like, it's not like to gently place it. It's cast it. Throw it. So there's a certain kind of violence and definiteness to it. You know you've done something when you've thrown something, right? There's this definite to us. And so the same way we are called to cast our sins, throw it, just throw it all at him. Say, Lord, here it is. (laughs) Have it. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me my sin. And he will. Do you know that your your God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin? So 1 John 1 tells us. 
He's faithful and just to forgive us. He's promised us he would. We can trust his promise. Take your sin to your God. So we start with adoration, looking up at God, reminding ourselves who, who our Lord is. We look inwards humbly and we're reminded who we are and we take our sin to him and, and receive that fresh mercy. Number three, thanksgiving. This is a pretty good one as well. Looking backwards with gratitude. Remember, he says, he's pleading with God, remember the word that you commanded, you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there I will gather them and make them to the place that I've shown them and bring them to the place I've, I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Here we see Nehemiah looking backwards at the promises of God made all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, I think it is. He looks all the way back to that promise to Moses where God had clearly told the Israelites, if you're unfaithful, if you worship other gods, you'll be sent off, you'll be cast out. And when you return to me, I'll bring you back. I'll gather you. I'll bring you in. If you return to me, I'll gather you in. And so Nehemiah, he reaches for those promises of God and says, Lord, fulfill these promises. You said you would exile us. You've done that. Lord, you said you would gather us back in. Do that now. Lord, fulfill your promises. Likewise, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us the same kind of prayer where he, 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 tells, us, he tells us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever been praying that and been thinking, why am I asking God to fulfill his, to make his, make his will be done on earth? Does he not want that? Why am I asking for that? Friends, of course he wants his kingdom to come. Of course he wants his will to be done. We are praying in that moment, Jesus is teaching us to pray that God's very own will would come to pass. We're praying back God's promises to us, his will back to him. So this is, it's, if you think about it, it's the best kind of prayer because it cannot fail. When we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying, Lord, make it happen. Lord, we're crying out to him to do what he wants to do. And Nehemiah teaches us, in the same way, we must pray God's promises that he's made to us back to him and say, Lord, do that. Do the thing you promised. Do the thing you promised. Let's think about you know, some of the things that Jesus said that he would do. We, can, we, should, we should be crying out to God, Lord, build your church. Let not the gates of hell stand against it. You said you would do that. Lord, do that. Let not the gates of hell prevail. Lord, let your glory cover the earth as the seas cover the earth. Lord, would you do that? We want to see that in our time. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, come. Come, fulfill your promises. And so can I encourage you, as you read the Bible, as you read the word, look for the promises God is making to you, to the church, to this world. Look for the promises and then pray them back to him. Lord, do this. Lord, do this. Lord, do this. Call on him to do those things. And like Nehemiah, let our prayers be shaped by that 
thankfulness for those promises. He's given us such wonderful promises, such gracious promises. Let our prayers be shaped by that thankfulness. Finally, after we've adored the Lord, (laughs) confessed our sin, thanked him, looked back, grabbed his promises, prayed them to him. After those things, only after those things, does Nehemiah actually begin to ask God for something in supplication. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So what's his prayer? What's his, what's his, what are you asking for? Lord, give me success. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Um, who's the man? We find out in the next verse. This is how he finishes, final verse. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. So that's when he drops that, that bomb on us as to who he is. It's only after this prayer that we find out, oh, this guy's got direct access to the king. It barely gets a mention. I love this about Nehemiah. I love how God-centered and sincere his prayer is. And what I love most, more than that, is that the fact that, 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 the fact that he has direct access to the most powerful man in the world seems like an afterthought for him. It's like, no, no, I've got the God of heaven. <laughs> I can pray to the God of heaven. And Lord, give me mercy in the sight of this man who I know can send me off to Jerusalem to do some good. Praise first. It's like, yeah, um, Artaxerxes is like an afterthought. How many of us, if we had the answer to our problem staring us in the face, like he did, King Artaxerxes, how many of us would bypass prayer and just go straight to the solution? I just need to go talk to him. He, like we, have a, we, have, we have some serious relational bank, me and Artaxerxes. He let me go. He likes me. I think, that he's, I think he could be swayed. Instead of going straight to the problem, to, to King Artaxerxes, he knows that he must come to the Lord first and ask for success. How many of us just skip that step? Go straight for the obvious thing. And Nehemiah knows prayer must come first. First. And so he prays to the Lord of heaven for the success. And so today as well, yes, we must ask the Lord for what we need. We must ask him for success in the things he's called us to. We must go to him and say, Lord, give us what we need. In the same way, if we go to the Lord's prayer, what does Jesus teach us to pray? Lord, give us our daily bread. Give us the provision for the day. Give us what we need to survive in this world. Give us what we need. In the same way, Guys, it honors God when we ask for provision, when we ask for what we need. If you need a job, it honors God to ask, you for a, ask him for a job. If you need a house to live in, it honors God to ask him for a house. When you need your daily bread, ask him for your daily bread. It honors him to go to him with our needs. And it honors him when we go to him to ask for success, for the, thing, the very thing that he's called us to. So even today, as I'm calling us to, as I think the word is calling us to, rebuild our prayer life. We should be praying for success in rebuilding our prayer life. It honors him to do that. So let's not be afraid that pray that, that, that God might actually do something. That prayer, to ask God for success, to ask God for what we need, it takes active faith. Active faith. We cannot move forwards on yesterday's faith. Yes, we trusted in God yesterday, and God came through for us. Praise God for that. 
but we need to believe again today for what we need today. We need to, pr- we need to pray again. We need to have faith again. We need to keep moving forwards in faith. We can't go forwards on yesterday's faith. And there is, I think, something, some barrier in us that believes that, yeah, God might have done something amazing in the past, but there's just not a lot of chance he's going to do it again. And we kind of treat God with the playing the percentages a little bit. Because it's not likely that God's going to do this thing. So why bother praying for it? There's this barrier in us, right? There's too many reasons that it's not going to work. Too many reasons for discouragement. Just too many reasons, too many problems. I think Toza said it wonderfully well. Uh, he's an American preacher who's passed away now. He says this. He says, unbelief says this. Some of the time, but not now. Some of the place, but not here. Some of the people, but not us. Faith says, anything God did anywhere else, he'll do here. Anything he was willing to do any other time, he'll do here. He'll do now. And anything God ever did for his people, he's willing to do for us. If we will yield and obey. We need to look to God again with faith, don't we? Fresh faith. Fresh faith for fresh grace. Okay, we're going to be a praying church. That's stating the obvious. This is my desire. I hope this is your desire as well as a church. Where do we go from here? I think there are some obvious steps we can take in growing in our faith as a church. None of these things are going to be new to you. Again, what what did Calvin say? The chief exercise of faith is prayer. So we need it. If we want to have faith, we need to pray. We need to pray. So here's what I'm asking. Next Wednesday, not this week, Wednesday after, we're having a prayer meeting here. Let's try to prioritize that as a church and say, look, if we want want anything to happen, we need to pray again. And we need to pray with that fresh faith. So please come along. Here's something that I know that happens every time, so let's just like acknowledge it and call a spade a spade. At 6 o'clock on that Wednesday, something will happen, which will mean you won't want to come. Almost certainly. It happens to everyone every time, especially with kids. <laughs> uh, and this is going to be a very strong pull to just go too much, too hard. Let's preempt that moment and have that, like let's be already decided that we're coming and not leave it up to chance because I think... No one who comes to that meeting is going to leave that meeting thinking that they've wasted their time. It can be hard to get in the car to come to those things. I get that, especially now it's coming into winter. But no one leaves that night thinking that they've wasted their time. So if you've never come to something like this before, it's be a great place to start. You don't have to be a big, bold public prayer. In fact, Jesus in the Gospels he tells people off for thinking that their big, fancy prayers are going to impress God. Well, because they're trying to impress people by their big, fancy prayers. Now, the Lord delights in the simple faith and simple prayers. So let's pray. Let's gather to pray. I so invite you to come. Again, if, you're, if, you're, if that scares you, please just come and watch and let the Lord use you in that way. Um, I think that that would be a really obvious, practical way to respond to what we're learning in Nehemiah, is to gather to pray. So it's not happening this week, because we've got to quit this week, week after, Wednesday night. 
Um, and then, of course, I'll give another plug, our 9 o'clock and 4 o'clock prayer. Again, that's time that as a church we want to prioritize and go, if nothing else, we need to be praying as a church. And so, again, I, I ask you to commit to consider church starting at 9 o'clock in morning church and come along to pray. And let's set about rebuilding our prayer lives together. We're going to move into a time of, of communion now. Do you, Jesse, do you want to come up and um, just because uh, we're going to need a little bit of music soon. Um, can I ask for a, a couple of volunteers to hand out the elements for me? Um, I haven't got anyone teed up, so maybe my wife. <laughs> thanks, Ben. Um, and Hugh. Thanks, thanks, mate. Um, look, if you're visiting us today, you're visiting our church today, and you are a follower of Jesus, you're so welcome to join us in, in celebrating communion this morning. And so if you've committed to follow Jesus in your own heart, you're welcome to join with us today. If, however, you are visiting and you're not sure where you stand with the Lord, um, you're not sure if you call yourself a Christian yet, I ask that you would actually abstain because this is a sacred thing for us. And we, it's, it's, it's not one of those things we want to enter into without due uh, consideration. And so we just ask that you abstain. Let me read this from 1 Corinthians 11. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took this bread and when he had given it, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we take the bread, we take the juice, we remember Jesus. As we take the Take the juice, take the bread, we remember Jesus, remember his life lived for us, remember his death on our behalf, his atoning death, remember the nails, remember the betrayal, remember the crown of thorns, remember the mockery, remember what the Lord did to us, did for us, so that we might be forgiven. We've just been talking about prayer, and so what we're going to do now is I'm just going to give you some time between you and the Lord to just spend in prayer before the Father. And so uh, we've just been talking through Acts, and so I encourage you to pray through Acts in this time. Uh, Jesse will play some, some guitar in the background for a little bit before we start our next song. And then I'll close in some prayer shortly. But just take a few minutes now in prayer. Thanks.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your cross. Lord, the, the sacrifice you made so that we might be your children. Lord, we, we confess that our sin, uh, we're, we're sorrowful that our sin required such a sacrifice. But we are filled with gratitude, Lord, that you, you, you took that step for us. Lord, you jumped off that cliff for the joy that was set before you. So, Lord, we, are, we thank you that you, you welcome us home. Not on, our, on the basis of our works, Lord, but on the basis of free grace. And so we receive that today, Lord, as a church. If you haven't eaten the bread, would you eat? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your body broken for us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood poured out that washes away our sin. Would you drink if you haven't drunk? Thank you, Jesus. Amen.